You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. This is Cody Williams from Airbrook Gaming, and you are listening to I Rebel, a Star Wars podcast. Her talents and abilities would continue to grow. In time, she would challenge her master for the right to rule, and only the stronger would survive. It was inevitable. It was the way of the Sith. One day I will surpass you, Xana warned him. And on that day, I will kill you, Lord Bane. But that day is not today. Forgery of Imperial documents. Possession of stolen property. Aggravated assault. State your name for the record. Jen Ursa. We have a mission for you. I want to help. Good. The world is coming undone. Imperial flags reign across the galaxy. I fear nothing. All is as the Force wills it. Every day they grow stronger. There isn't much time. I rebel. Welcome back, everyone, to I Bell. I'm your host, Jedi Geek Girl. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited to be continuing my deep dive into the Darth Bane trilogy. I cannot wait to take another dive into this topic with one of my favorite guests for this episode, the biggest Darth Bane fan I know, all-around great guy, from Airbrook Gaming, the one, the only, Manton. <laughs> hey, thanks for that introduction. That's overly generous. And yeah, I'm super excited, especially to talk about this book. I think I messaged you a couple times before this, and you're like, no, 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 save it for the, the podcast. I was like, okay, okay, okay. But I really like this book. I'm excited to dive into it. I think it's a big change up from the first book for everyone who listened to that one and has read it. We get into the second book, and I think it starts to get into really interesting territory. It really does, and we're not going to waste any time to dive into it. But before we do, I have to ask you, how are you doing today? Doing good. I just got done doing a, another read-through of the book, which is always exciting, and I think I just finished listening to probably the, the last sentence like five minutes ago <laughs> to make sure I was uh, on top of everything. So it's been a good day. Half the day was filled with listening to Darth Bane, so you can't ever complain about that. That is amazing. Unfortunately, I did not finish the book before recording. Actually, I actually plowed through it. Like I finished it like five days ahead of time, so it's not as fresh in my mind, but I was hooked when I started and I had to finish it, so. Oh, yeah. If it had been my first read-through, I would have done the same thing, for sure. Especially the end. It's just like a roller coaster. It just goes up and then it never peaks and it just keeps going up and then the book ends and you're like, what What happened? Exactly. And without wasting any more time, are you ready to dive in? Absolutely. Uh, I've been looking forward to this and can't wait to get started. Hello, Rebels. Forever Fett here. This show is made possible through the generous donations of everyone who is a patron of Iverbell. It is the pledges of those patrons and you, the listening audience, that makes iRebel work. If you'd like to find out more information about rewards you can get, as well as how you can play a part in iRebel, please check out patreon.com slash iRebelDestiny for more information. I myself am a proud patron of iRebel, and I'm happy to share my love of iRebel with you by telling you all about their Patreon page. So check it out, and if you like what you see, become a rebel by becoming a patron of iRebel. Back to you, Jedi Geek Girl. The Sith have been wiped out. Only two remain, the Master Bane and the Apprentice, Zahanna. 
How is the ideology of the rule two going to work? What about the Jedi? Will they find out that only two remain? And will Xana kill Bane? This book not only answers these questions, but continues this book trilogy delivery of great character, character growth, and storytelling in book two of the Darth Bane trilogy, Rule of Two. Kicking this off at the beginning, before we dive into the story itself, when did you first know that there was going to be a follow-up to Path of Destruction? And what were your expectations before reading the book? So it's a little weird on this one. I actually read this book first in the trilogy series before reading the other one. I didn't know at the time because I was much younger. I didn't know there was a book before this. And I just saw the title Rule of Two. And this is the book I started the series with and then immediately went back and read the book beforehand. So this was my first introduction to Bane, to Zana, to the whole situation. And I didn't ever feel lost in any of it. It still made sense. But going back and reading it obviously filled in a lot. So this book has kind of like a special place because it was my introduction to Bane and everything else. That is absolutely amazing. I'm trying to wrap my brain around the idea of starting with the second book of the trilogy. That is absolutely amazing because usually when people start a trilogy, they start with the first book. And I can completely understand it because on the cover, it doesn't say that this is book two of the trilogy. And you were able to follow along the story without being lost. That is absolutely incredible. I think it gives a lot of credence to the book that you were able to read the book and not be lost. Yeah, actually, I went to like a Barnes & Noble to buy the book when it came out. I just was at Barnes & Noble looking for a Star Wars book to buy. And then I saw Rule of Two and I was like, oh, that's sweet. I kind of know a little bit about Rule of Two. This must be about that. And I read it. Nowhere on the cover of the book does it say book two of a series, right? So I just picked it up, grabbed it and started reading it. I read the whole thing through and then eventually realized after the fact, oh, there's a book before this. So going back to the first book, because you read this book first, how did that influence how you read Path of Destruction? Well, obviously I knew, and I think anyone reading it knows that Bane's going to survive and do all these other things. So it was more of like, it was almost like a trilogy, you know, original trilogy moment when you went back and read the prequels, except, you know, this was a lot better. So I really enjoyed it. It was answering some questions that I had from the second book. But to be honest, the way this book is written is it almost writes like you've never read the book before it, because it fully explains like the thought bomb, everything that happened in book one, for the most part gets explained or brushed over. And I had obviously played Coltor and things like that already. So I had some, I was familiar with, you know, Sith training and I had enough background information that I didn't realize that, you know, I was really missing anything, but it connected a lot of the dots. And that's why I think I really like book one, because I was introduced to Bane as a super powerful Sith. And then I got to go see him from his beginning after knowing where he gets to. And then kind of like going through that process with him, I thought was exciting when I went back and read the first book. I love the idea of that that you read Rule 2 first because it gives you a, a unique perspective on a story that some people do not have. So whenever I hear about people in the fandom who were exposed to the Star Wars film with the prequel trilogy or even Revenge of the Sith or even the sequel trilogy, I find that really fascinating because usually the majority always starts with A New Hope or that is how they are told to start the story and it gives them a certain perspective a certain experience and to have somebody who has a different experience than that it's just fascinating and unique and it's something that I like talking about and exploring because too often something is so common that when something new comes around or something different it's not focused upon enough in my opinion at least yeah I think overall it was uh, a lot better than it could have been uh, there's some books you could start with that would feel terrible but it made sense I mean it actually starting with two funny enough mirrors like watching episode four and then going back and figuring out what happened very similar there 
I think it worked out well, but it's one of the reasons I do really like this book because it introduced me to everything as well, and I'm super excited to talk about it. When did you first find out that there was a first book? Did you find out right away or did you find out later? Like, how did you feel about Path of Destruction? It was pretty much right after I finished the book. My friend at the time who originally got me into the series because he was talking about it mentioned that there was a book before this one and that he had it. And so after I finished this book, I went and borrowed it from him and read the rest of the other book. We actually just kind of traded. I was like, "Uh, here you go. I know it was a long time ago, but do you remember what you were feeling or what your thoughts were on the book after you read it for the first time? I remember, it's the same thought I have every time I finish one of these books. It's like, finally, someone writes the dark side correctly, because most of the time the dark side is written very poorly. But it's also, I love how well the dark side is written in this. I was looking forward to the future, and it started placing a lot more importance on the stuff that like Sidious did. Like It really makes me think a lot of Sidious when I read this book. Because every single thing that Bane sets up throughout the entire book is just, is everything that Sidious capitalized on at the end. It really does. And before we dive into the story, I have a couple points I would like to talk about. Number one, the creatures on his body. I heard about that from you first, and I thought it was going to be a more permanent situation. So that was fascinating to read and learn. And another thing is, it helps me give perspective on Plagueis which is a book I am not too thrilled about, but it's one that I want to revisit after reading the Darth Bane trilogy because it helps give me perspective on that story and maybe I will like it more. That is something that I am finding to be really interesting because it's like, okay, now I have a little bit more perspective on it. It's helping, I don't want to say correct, but help improve some of the opinions I had on the book itself. Yeah, the Orbalisks are a fun addition. I think it's what he's most remembered for is in that time period when he's Lord of the Sith and has the Orbalisks on his body. I think it's why it's referenced a lot, but I don't particularly like the art that is available of him in his Orbalisk armor. It's nothing close to what I've ever pictured, so I haven't yet seen pictures that really, I feel, do it justice. It always looks uh, looks weird, I guess. Do you have any other point you would like to touch upon before we dive into the story and have you lead like you did last time? No, I think I, I'm ready to, to get started If unless you have something you want to add ahead of time, but I think we'll cover almost everything while we go through it. Not at this time, but I'm sure something will come up when we talk the story. So without further ado, go ahead and take it from the top. Sweet. So we go ahead and get started in this book legitimately right where the last book left off with Rain becoming the apprentice of Darth Bane. And Darth Bane starts teaching her some of the ways of the Force before they go and uh, leave Rusan, which is a planet that they're still on. We also do get a cutaway in this beginning scene that shows Tomcat, Rain's cousin, is still alive from the Thought Bomb, who had previously joined the Sith after being a Jedi. We get to follow him as he escapes from the tunnel and is afraid of being identified as a Sith and ends up going actually back into the tunnel. But I find it interesting that it's almost word for word picks up, which is really well done. And you think it would be confusing if you hadn't seen any of this firsthand, but they spend plenty of time explaining the thought bomb, like what exactly happened. They talk about Khan and the Brotherhood and everything going in. So it's actually not a bad starting point if you've never read the series. But I found it very interesting that Bane's interaction with Rain before 
when she's a small child when they first start meeting and he's teaching her like the Sith code and teaching her how to use her power to like keep up with him because he's walking across the planet and she's struggling to keep up. So he starts showing her how to use the dark side to manipulate her legs and abilities to run faster and not get tired and things like that. I have three points I would like to say. Number one, I was surprised that it picked up exactly from where it left off at the end. For some reason, I thought, okay, he came across this little girl that is going to become his apprentice, and then the book two is going to jump because in trilogies, especially in Star Wars, it seems like there's some sort of time jump between one and two, especially in the books. So I was a little bit surprised that it picked up exactly from where it left off. And number two, the horrors of the thought bomb is just... This book dives into that, and it's just such a creepy image to have in your head. Like I said last episode, it is so horrifying just picturing this in your head. And number three, I love the dynamic between Bane and Zahanna. I love that dynamic about their relationship because, you know, she's 10 years old, and he's a master, and just her trying to learn this underneath him, and him being patient because, you know, she is a child, she is learning these things, and... This is his first time doing it, too. Yeah, and I think the first big moment is when they go to the Sith camp, the old Sith camp. As Bane is approaching, they realize that there's some scavengers basically from the Sith side of the war that ran off who are trying to take whatever's left at the Sith camp before they take off. Bane comes in. This is the first time Xana gets to see the real power of the dark side as Bane just effortlessly goes through and destroys everyone uh, with his lightsaber and lightning but he allows two of them to run off. And that's his first big lesson, which is recurring throughout pretty much the entire book. It's a different thought that you don't really see a lot in dark side stuff, but it was like there was no purpose in killing them and there was more purpose in letting them live. Because those two people running off and then proclaiming that the Sith still live will distract anyone who's actually looking for the Sith. A tons of different stories of the Sith existing from not legitimate sources causes one if you're going to go and look through all of these rumors it's going to take a lot of time but two it makes all the rumors not very trustworthy if it's continually being told by non-trustworthy sources which is a very smart way to do it and is anna's first real taste of what full dark side looks like and that's where she gets to make a decision her first decision of many if she actually wants to go down this path and that's kind of where her hunger starts to build from it is also fascinating because this is new ground for Bane. Like, obviously, he is imparting this lesson, but he never done this before. He never been in this situation because, obviously, before this, you know, the Sith were a thing. So, I don't want to say he's, like, feeling it out as he goes, but he is learning himself, you know, fitting into this role. It's not like he is halfway through the rule, two and he had other masters to learn from and grow upon. No, this is new for him. And that is fascinating because it's like, okay, you're not going to be perfect. Yes, it's fiction where you can be perfect, but you're also curious to see, okay, how is this is going to play later in the story, which it does. A lot of the things in this introduction play later into the story, which I absolutely love with how Drew does these kind of things. But that is another thing. And before I pass it back to you, it is also fascinating from Johanna's point of view, because if you put yourself in that situation... You can draw yourself into picturing that and craving that because if you witness that type of power, it stirs something in you, or at least in that world it does, where you want it because it's like nothing you have ever seen before. Yeah, that's, you know, it's a great scene for causing her hunger and realization of what kind of power she can achieve. And then it also, shortly after that scene, 
Bane talks to her about why he joined the Sith, and it eventually comes to freedom, freedom from everything. That type of power grants you freedom from external forces and allows you to pursue whatever your ultimate goal is. And that's kind of the whole birth of what Bane's understanding of the dark side is. And then at the camp, Xana finds a manuscript from Cordis. Cordis had taken a bunch of manuscripts and money and everything else that they get to later. But they find this, and it's Freedom Nad's old tomb location is inside. Bane decides that that's where he's going to go. But he's been plagued by visions of Cordis and Khan from the Thought Bomb, and also headaches and some tremors. And I have some theories on, on actually what that is as well, but I'll let you continue with everything we just talked about. Before you dive into that, I would like to say that is a very human thing. I feel like who doesn't want to be free from circumstances because it's very human to be in this societal thing and wanting to be free and outside of that. So I feel like the dark side is very, it plays into a lot of the human emotions. So you look at the Sith cold and you're like, okay, I can see how somebody can connect to this because we live in a very structured society. We have to play by societal rules. Otherwise, society doesn't work, we don't work, and it plays to a very humanistic, animalistic point of view of freedom, so I find that very relatable. Yeah, that's like the whole call of the dark side, and why some people you'll see use dark side for just personal gain, and it's not necessarily like bad. For some people, I see like the dark side is like just being smarter than someone else, right? Like there's plenty of people in the real world. How I look at it is like just smarter than other people, and they use that intellect to achieve more throughout life. And there are people like that with the dark side that you run into who don't really know if they're using the force, but they're using it in a way that just betters their life. And then you have the complete opposite into the dark side spectrum, which is like Bane, who is trying to use it in order to take over the entire universe and rid the galaxy of Jedi. So there's like all different ways that falls into that place. Getting back to the vision Bane had, what are your theories on that? So it's kind of weird. So he starts seeing visions of Khan, who doesn't really talk at all. He only laughs once in the entire book. And then you also have Visions of Cordis, who was not at the Thought Bomb, who talks to him continually. He talks a little bit later in the book, but the visions start showing up and he starts having a really bad headache. But as what we know from the Force from other books and from other canon and things like that, is that Force is basically like a finite matter in the galaxy where there's only like so much of it. And the more people who have access to it, the smaller amounts people each individual gets. It's the example of why, like, Sidious can destroy three Jedi Masters in two seconds is because, well, they're all splitting the force between all of the Jedi, and he has nearly all of the dark side power just for himself. This is an explanation that's been given through a lot, and it even goes into the sequel series. But I believe a lot of these headaches, damages, seeing the people is the dark side was spread out between all of Khan's forces, obviously in different amounts. Some people have access to some more than others, but all of this was in a a minute, was all crammed into Bane out of nowhere. I believe that is what is causing his headaches and his tremors and his visions of the people. Also why Cordis can talk and Khan can't, because Khan's essence is actually trapped inside the Thought Bomb, so he can only be there as a vision. Cordis was not. Cordis died before the Thought Bomb, so he's able to speak. And I believe it's just the dark side presence slowly forcing its way into one conduit, which it hasn't done in a very long time. And we see these visions eventually go away later in the book. Once he taps into more dark side power potential and learns more, they suddenly vanish once he is able to use his power better. I actually agree with that. And I actually find it really fascinating. 
I also thought that when it came to the lightsaber master talking to him, I thought that was more of his subconscious instead of it actually being him. But what you just got them saying with it being the dark side of the force, that actually makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I, I definitely subscribe to that idea because for so long, the dark side of the force, as you said, has been spread across. And now instead of being focused to different conduits, it's being focused into this one funnel. And not only is it new for the dark side or new again for the dark side, it's also new for Bane because Bane was trained and he lived under this period of time where there was not the amount of dark side in one person. So at this point in time, I don't think he was fully unlocked. It wasn't until he got the creatures where he was able to be unlocked to let it all in. And that is why it was rough for him. You know, he had the headache, he had the visions, he was haunted. And it makes you wonder, like, what would have happened if he did not get unlocked? Yeah, I think he would have eventually, like, adjusted to it, but it was just an adjustment period. It was obviously hurried along by Freedom Nad's holocron that he later takes, and that allowed him to quickly regain everything. But what ends up happening is because he's having these tremors and headaches and everything else, he needs to go to the Thought Bomb, see it for himself, and make sure Khan is dead. And so him and Xana end up jumping on a speeder and heading towards the cave. At this point, Tomcat is still in the cave, has gone back to the cave. He's now completely lost in the cave and thinks he's going to die. You see them arrive at the cave, and they are still going through different teachings. And he's explaining to Xana, like, the rule of two and eventually things that she has to accomplish. And at that time, they go up to the Thought Bomb. Bane presses his hand against the Thought Bomb, which is like an orb that is contained inside the circle that contains all of the spirits, essentially, of everyone who is trapped by the Thought Bomb who are constantly in pain forever in that area, Bane plunges his mind into the Thought Bomb and does see that, oh, everyone's in here, everyone's dead. Everything that I, I wanted to accomplish has been accomplished. And again, the idea of this is just horrifying. One thing that I did not realize until a couple of days ago is this reminds me of the Emperor, the old Republic Emperor who did the same thing and had all these souls inside of him and he was able to live for a very, very long time. It actually reminded me of spoilers for Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood of the main villain. I don't know if I would really call him a villain from that series that kind of had the same thing, who had immortality through having other souls crammed into him through some sort of ritual. And I thought that was very fascinating, and I'm surprised they actually didn't put it together when I read the first book, because it was talked about in the first book, and you put two and two together to the old Republic Emperor. And it was actually after I read this book, or during reading that book, that I actually put two and two together. And it's just, it's so fascinating because he touches the spear that is being described. And, you know, those poor souls are in there in a state of pain forever. And it just reminds me of the old Republic Emperor, which reminds me of Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Yeah, the Emperor was obviously able to use the Thought Bomb correctly, and the Thought Bomb can grant immortality if you have the ability to use it and control it, which Khan didn't. We kind of find out later why. It's very interesting how they talk about later certain Sith have the abilities in certain areas of the dark side that other ones don't. There's like an elemental power, which is Bane, the ability to cast lightning and things like that with ease, and it's stronger than most people's lightning, right? And we saw that in book one, when he destroys the entire room within like an hour of learning how to cast lightning. And then you have sorcery, which is Xana, or the, I would also say the original Sith Emperor must have also been very, would have had a great affinity for Sith sorcery. And then you have persuasion and mental tactics, which is Khan. 
And all of that kind of gets explained in the book, which is explained why Khan couldn't use the thought bomb correctly. He didn't have the correct affinity for those talents. And why you see over the course of time, Sith rise up that have powers that other ones don't. And that has to do with more of where their affinity in the dark side lies, because the dark side can take and have many different powers and abilities. And not everyone can use all of the abilities. It also lines up with what we see in a Jedi, not only in legend, but in canon, where you have these Jedi slash Sith, these force users who have specialities in certain areas. So, of course, it makes sense that, of course, it would be the same thing for the dark side. Yeah, and we see that a lot more with Jedi because most stories are about Jedi. It's the first time you really dug into Sith doing it. You hear stories of it, but we all know there are Jedi healers and people who do battle meditation and lightsaber masters. And we know of all these different types, consulars and sentinels and everything else, but you don't really get to see that as often with the Sith. And I thought that was really cool. It also explains that having affinity for being a Sith sorcerer is super rare. It's not something that most people have. Only once in a while do you have it, but it has a lot of the true powers. But going back to where we're at in the story is Rain or Zana is talking with Darth Bane. And then Tomcat hears their voice and runs out and sees them. This is like, again, another first decision for Zana. She realizes she wants to hug her cousin. She's happy to see him, but she also realizes that he'll be killed by Bane for existing if she doesn't do something to stop that. She takes the lessons that Bane has taught her and then ends up just blowing his hand off and telling Bane that he doesn't matter. He's not important. We can just let him live. There's no use in his death. Kind of throws his training right back at him. Bane, while he doesn't agree, he does agree that it's worth more to reward her for learning than it is to kill this guy, even though he kind of hints the fact that they should probably kill him, which we all kind of agree that's what he should have done. But the risk of not killing him is offset by the bonus of allowing her to feel rewarded for learning. What I really appreciate about this moment is, like you mentioned before, we have a lot more stories about Jedi than we do Sith. And I'm sure there's more Sith stories and legends that I haven't read yet. But for me, this is something that I have not seen yet. Because when you hear about a Sith master and a Sith apprentice, it is usually a very aggressive relationship, abusive. So when I look at this story, Bane is something that is different because he's more patient, at least in this moment, with her. And I thought it was something new that I haven't seen at this point in time in Star Wars and it's something fascinating and it makes a lot of sense you want to reward because she is learning this is new for her and of course she is not going to be perfect it helps the Sith cause for him to not punish her for doing what she did was wrong but reward her for what she was doing was right so when it comes up again she will grow from that instead of second guessing herself yeah and He comes from a couple different places. One, we typically don't get to see the relationship when the apprentice is a child. Most of the time we see him as an adult who is nearly fully trained. And two, I think it comes from motivations. Bane's motivation is to continue the Sith, create the platform from the Sith, and he is very much, everything is for the dark side and for the Sith and the continuation of. So he is intending to train her to kill him later. Like That is his full 100% attempt. When we see normally see stories of the Sith, they're past that point. Sidious is a great example. Like, he never trained anyone with the intention to take over because he thought he was the Sithari, which is the Sith that was going to rule the galaxy, which he actually could have, might have been. It's very possible that he is. But when it gets to his story and the stories of the Sith surrounding him, they all thought they were the last one. They no longer had to follow that rule anymore. And Bane is the beginning. So he's 100% like, no, 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 I got to get this right. I only care about her becoming stronger than me 
killing me and leading the Sith correctly. And so his motivations are way different than what we've normally seen. I agree 100%. And that is why it makes this part of the story so interesting to me. And I love Johanna, how she is. She's like this. You see it in movies. You see it in other stories about this evil little child. Usually a girl is more creepy than a little boy. But those types of stories really draw you in and you really get lost. And it's really twisted. It's a really twisted sense of evil. Or even stories where the child is not evil, like Portuguese. It just really draws you in. And yeah, I was, I just was hooked on the story and their dynamic. And what happens next and Bane's next lesson for her was also, I don't want to say interesting, but was also a very important moment. Yeah. It's interesting with Xana because I like how she's written. She's not just like all powerful at the beginning. She has affinities for things. She shows some natural abilities and she shows some willingness to do things. She's very headstrong and she's very smart, but she's still being taught. Like Bane's still teaching her. She's slowly starting to realize everything. And she makes a lot of decisions during this time that point her in the path that she's going to go. And I really like how she's written. She's written like a, a great character. And she's super great to follow. And you do spend a lot of the story in this book from her perspective. And I think it's, it's great and really well done. But after this, Bane decides that they're going to leave the planet. He's done everything he needs to do. He goes over to his ship that he took, Cordis, before, and decides that he's going to go alone. He's going to go to Freedom Nad's tomb. And that his apprentice needs to find her own way off of the planet of Rusan and to meet him on Onderon. And he gives her 10 days, and she kind of freaks out because very upset and angry. He just explains that this is her first test, and she needs to figure out how to do it before he takes off and leaves. And I think this is a great moment. It's also really important that the story gives her a choice, and that's what's coming up. But she has to commit to it, or there would be weird thoughts of like this 10-year-old being manipulated. While she is, ultimately she makes the choice that this is what she wants. That is great, because too often when you have a story like this, even with the Jedi, there's that sense that the child doesn't even have a choice or the child is being manipulated or abused. And this is mentioned later in the book where Zahanna talks about her relationship with Bane and he wasn't abusive, which is kind of strange if you're familiar only with the newest Sith because those relationships, even non-Sith like Kylo and Snoke were very abusive. But this was also a fascinating moment because it also tests her ambition not only her skill, but her ambition. And it does also, like you mentioned, test, hey, this is what is available for you if you want to go down this path, but I'm going to give you a choice, but I'm also testing your ambition and I'm also testing your skill because if you're not able to do this, then you're not worth being trained. Exactly. And also, he can't take her, obviously, with him to the Freedom Nance tomb, so he decides not to do that. Then we kind of cut back from there and we start to follow Johan, which is the apprentice to Hoth, who was his Padawan. And we're seeing Farfalla, who has now taken up the mantle and leadership of the Army of Light. They're all sitting in space in all of their ships. Johan wants to go back down and investigate and make sure all the Sith have died. Farfalla does not want to allow anyone to go back down to the surface because he doesn't know what's going to happen with the Thought Bomb. He does send a team of non-Force-sensitive people down to the surface to start collecting supplies and helping people who might be injured. Johan uses the Force to trick them to allow him to get himself onto that ship. And so they go down to the surface, and shortly afterwards, Johan runs into the two people who Bane let go, the two Sith Marauders who he let go. And they claim that there's a Sith on the loose, that they need protection, 
So Johan calls back down another ship to take them away. While that's happening, the other two people who they sent down and the, the two kids who are being sent down to give relief efforts end up running across Xana, trying to help her out. I wasn't a huge fan of the character, the Jedi Padawan. I found him to be very unlikable, in my opinion. Obviously, I knew that this character was going to play an important part, but I did not know. Obviously, he plays an important part in the climax of the story. I also thought it was, it's really sad. It's kind of twisted because Zahanna is an important character in the story, and you don't want to root for evil, but obviously, this is the main character that you're following. You want to see the story progress, and you want to see her get to Bane. For the story, obviously, you're not rooting for evil. Unless you are, you do you. But at the same time, it's also sad because you get introduced to these characters and then Zahanna kills them off on her escape. Yep, they run into her and it's, I think the man's name is Bowden and he has two kids. And then there's uh, like an ex-military woman on there as well. And Zana says she needs to go to Onderon. Say, well, they can't take her there, but they'll take her up to the fleet and then figure out what they can do after that. And Bowden offers to allow her to basically stay and live with him and his two sons. And this is Xana's like big decision point. And she even goes through it. She's like, well, what's so wrong with having like a normal life? I could just do this, have a normal life and forget about this Darth Bane and everything else until one of the sons mentions how their mom died in war and there's nothing they could do about it. She kind of accepts the fact that all of these people are powerless and that peace is a lie. Because of that, basically the dark side is true. And this is how she's going to gain power to protect people she loves and cares about and everything that she wants to accomplish. That's when she makes the decision that she is basically going to hijack the ship that they're on, and she ends up killing the younger son with a blaster. That first one was by accident, but Bowden runs in, sees what's happening, tries to tackle the girl, and he ends up getting shot in the stomach as well. She then exits from the compartment that she's in, goes to the cockpit, holds the pilot hostage, tells her to punch in the coordinates for Onderon. She does. The pilot's like, oh, you're not going to shoot me. You're not a killer. And she's like, yes, I am, and just shoots her, which I think was like an awesome scene. And then just turns and executes the other son who's still strapped to his chair. I agree. It is, I don't want to say it is the moment where she loses her humanity, but it was an important point for her because this is where she decides to go down that path. Like, she killed the Jedi, but that was more out of a blind sense of rage. This is the moment where she's like, I'm a killer and I'm going to intentionally kill you. Where before it was more of a happenstance of being in the moment. This is basically her committing down the path because once you're a killer, once you're an intentional killer, if you kill somebody in cold blood forever, you're that. There's no going back from that. Yep. This is where she makes her decision that this is what she wants and that she's not going to feel guilty or held back by it anymore. And the flip side, you flip back to Bane, who is trudging through a forest with two spirits, basically, egging him on, looking for Freedom Nan's tomb. He does get like a short attack by one of the monsters on there who almost kills him which is a little bad, is showing how much his powers are kind of not in effect right now when he almost dies to some wild animal. Now, the animal does have the ability to draw on the dark side a little bit because this whole moon is kind of covered in the dark side. But he ends up surviving through that and makes his way into Freedom Nad's tomb, which has obviously been discovered before by Exar Kun. And Exar Kun was told that he came out with abilities beyond his wild streams. And obviously, Bane's worried that there's nothing left here, just like all the other tombs that he had visited. Eventually, he does find a large block of stone that looks like it's been placed in a doorway, which he sort of believes maybe there was some Sith sorcery behind that was like hiding it for all these years that has worn off over time. 
ultimately he removes that and then walks into a room that is covered with beetles on the roof with a holocron sitting on a pedestal in the middle. Those creatures, like, obviously I knew about them because you talked about them when you were doing content for Airport Gaming and stuff like that. I did not expect them to come into the story this early. I just picture them in my head and what they do for the user just horrifies me because could you imagine being in that situation? It's just so horrifying. Yeah, it would take a lot of mental fortitude to be able to deal with the orbalisks, which are very rare creatures who draw on the dark side through hosts and just tangentially through the environment. But their shells are immune to blaster fire and lightsabers. And then they give quick healing abilities to whoever they attach to due to the fact that they need them to live. But the way they do this is they eject this like burning acid into the bloodstream that you have to survive, which causes more dark side pain. And it just allows them to draw more on your dark side. And so it just comes a loop of creating more and more dark side ability for them to feed on. But you get to reach greater heights because you're able to draw in more pain. When you read this for the first time, what did you think about these creatures? Because when I read it for the first time, like I said, they're horrifying to me. At least I picture them as horrifying as these creatures that just fall on you and they latch on and you cannot remove them. Obviously, you learn later that if you try to remove them, they release a poison. It reminds me a lot of, I keep comparing things to Alien, but they kind of remind me of facehuggers where they latch on to you and if you try to remove them, they kill the host. This is obviously a. It's a situation where I fall into a couple of times with Bane where it's obvious, like, it's why I've never said Bane is the most powerful Sith, or even in the top, like, 10, maybe, of the most powerful Sith. He makes a lot of bad decisions. He's very rash, and he lucks out a couple of times, or is just a beneficiary of being the only Sith alive, so he has that much access to that much of the dark side. But he doesn't attempt to do anything ahead of time to scout out what these beetles might be. He just kind of runs in and grabs the holocron and they all just shower on him. I would have liked him to attempt to, you know, use lightning on them. The thing that he does all the time or grab one by the force and try to crush it or do something ahead of time to see if there's a better way in. But he just rushes recklessly in there, grabs the holocron. They start showering on him. He realizes that he can't beat them off with his lightsaber. It's like he's using a bat to hit them around the room. They start attaching themselves to his chest and one to his back with that searing pain. These were simply designed to kill him, he would have died, but at least they had some benefit to him. So while he has to now deal, his stupidity has led to immense pain all the time, discomfort and lack of fine motor function, and a couple of other things, but now he does have some benefits from it. So if they had just been something poisonous, he would have died in that instant. Absolutely. At the same time, though, he's the benefits for them. When you get to the point in the story where he no longer has them, it feels like he lost a piece of himself. So they do essentially become a piece of him. And he does draw for them and it does help him survive. And you mentioned about how Bane is, isn't even in the top 10 when it comes to strings. I also think he's one of the smartest ones. And usually I'm thinking in real life, like usually people who cause revolution are usually not the most brightest or they are not the strongest. They are just the most opportunistic. Like, for those who watch wrestling, Edge, his nickname is called the, obviously it's predetermined, but his nickname is the ultimate opportunist, and he did not get his opportunities in storyline because he was the biggest, the strongest. It was because he was the most cunning. He saw the opportunity, and bringing this back to Bane, it reminds me a lot of Bane. Yeah, he definitely has strengths, but pure power, I don't think, is one of them. 
he is what I have always referred to as like he's like a pure Sith. He believes in the purity of what the Sith believe in versus he's almost less selfish than almost any Sith you'll run into because he is all about preserving the Sith order, rediscovering all the things that have been lost over the years from the Sith, reintroducing those to the Sith line, creating the new Sith line, and where ultimately that will lead in the end and putting all the foundations in place. So he's basically doing all this for the future Sith. He's doing almost nothing for himself except for creating his own holocron, which is both his ability to exist internally nearly and then also to be able to shape the future of the Sith, which is his ultimate goal. He has a much different outlook than most Sith, and that's why I really like him is that he is what I would consider like a purely believes in the dark side and the Sith in the most pure manner. He feels like a guy you can sit down and have a conversation with. Where with some Sith, you feel like you couldn't do that. Like with Vader, you obviously couldn't do that. I don't know if you could do that with Palpatine. Palpatine would probably be like full of disdain. I don't think he would give you the time of day. But I feel like with Bane, you could actually sit down and have a conversation. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, because he's way more on secrecy and everything else. Like he's not just about displaying his power at all times, which a lot of the Sith are. Like Vader is a great example of, of a Sith who always has to show his power in every situation. And Bane will meet with someone and never let them know that he was, you know, a Sith. And a lot of other Sith, for some reason, don't seem to have the ability to do that. I would like to rewind a little bit and say when he got to this planet, he actually crashed his ship because he was being hunted by these two figures. And he actually lashed out with the force, causing his ship to crash. And moving back to where you were, he needed to get off to Alderaan, but he didn't have a ship. Yeah. So what he ultimately ends up doing is he takes the holocron. This is a big moment for him. He takes this holocron. It's the second one he's ever found. The first one was of Revan. This is the first one he can hold on to and keep, though. He immediately just starts studying it. And through the study of this holocron, he learns far more, which allows him to draw much more on the dark side. And maybe even the Orbalisks help with this. And all of the visions end up completely leaving him. He no longer has the headaches. He no longer has the visions of Khan or Cordis. And it's kind of like, instead of having a cup that's continually running over with fluid, the cup has now got bigger and it can contain all the fluid, which would be the force in this case. It's no longer plaguing him to be able to do that. So he ends up deciding now he needs to get off the planet. He ends up dominating the mind of a giant bird, then cocooning himself in the force, flying from the moon to Onderon through space. For me, I didn't really like this moment just because I'm not a fan of the idea of somebody flying through space on a creature, bird specifically, and going out of the atmosphere. They say the distance, the distance is like 200 kilometers, which is I think like 300 miles, I'm not sure. And just trying to picture that in my head, like, okay, just how close is that actually, which is really, really close if you think about it in space terms, because where he needs to go is like 300 miles away, which is unbelievably close it's just trying to picture that in my head i like that idea because when you think about space you think about planets that are so far apart and even moons they are not that close the cocoon of dark side that trapped air like there's a couple weird things one if a cocoon of dark side existed that would stop the effects of space on you and the animal then propulsion's not an issue as long as you were able to propel out of the initial atmosphere then you would maintain that propulsion throughout space because there isn't anything to slow you down. You don't have to create any more. If you create enough at the beginning to get out, then you can just maintain that through. And then the cocoon then protects him and the bird. So either way, that ends up being how he escapes from there to Onderon. 
Meanwhile, you have Xana, who has just now landed her ship in a kind of like a, a small forest clearing and is now being harassed by the locals who are all beast riders who are kind of, I don't understand this, but they're like, hey, we're going to take your ship, but I guess also kill her and not just take her ship. She could have just given her the ship and then tried to at least get out a little bit ways. But instead of them just taking the ship, they decide they are going to attack her before taking the ship. It's like one of the weird parts that bothered me a little bit, but it's it, it was fine. But Xana is now kind of shows off her force powers and they think they have a little Jedi here. While they're closing in on him, that's when Bane swoops out of the sky and kind of falls to her rescue almost. I also feel like this is a very important moment for her because obviously when she was on the ship, she had to deal with, okay, how am I going to navigate this situation? But she ends up killing him. However, this is the first time where she was vastly outnumbered and just watching her navigate that to see, okay, how is she going to navigate that? Like, how is she going to use her first abilities? Is she going to use her first ability? How is she going to get out of it? How is she going to deal with it? It was just a very interesting situation because this is new for her. Yep. It ends up being Bane to the rescue, as it probably should have been. All of the Beast Riders jump on their beasts, they have a big fight in the sky, which ends up having Bane thrown into the ground at tremendous force, but he survives due to a cocoon of the force, and then also because of the Orbalisks pumping healing back into his body. This is when Azana sees him now with the Orbalisks on his chest. It's pretty funny because she asks if she, has to, <laughs> if she has to wear one of those now, which he tells her no because she couldn't handle it. This is where they set off together. This is their reuniting moment. She has now agreed 100% to be his apprentice, has shown that she is capable, and he now has learned additional secrets of the Force in which he is going to study, learn from, teach to her, and start setting up the Sith moving forward. It also wraps up the story of Tomcat and the Jedi Padawan. Yeah, Tomcat ends up just deciding he doesn't want to be a Jedi or a Sith and living in the forest with the bouncers from the previous one. Johan ends up graduating into to be a Jedi Knight and then gets tasked with being personal bodyguard of Chancellor Valorum, who is leader of the current Senate that is in place. And the Chancellor also put through an act that put the Jedi in a place that we see them in the prequels. Correct. Yeah, they pass legislation that then disbands the Army of Light and forces all ranks to be dropped from the Jedi and forces the Jedi basically you know, like you mentioned, like how we normally see them. They are under the Senate. They kind of work for the Senate and they are now supposed to be for peace and diplomats and not a war. After these three stories just concluded, we jumped 10 years. And for me, that took me back a little bit because I was so into the story about Zahanna and Bane. Like I said, I really like that dynamic when she's a kid. It's just that it's so fascinating because you don't see a lot of that. At first, I was a little put off by it. I didn't like it because it's like, okay, there's 10 years of story there that you missed out. But of course, it makes a lot of sense. You almost have to just because a 10-year-old versus a 20-year-old it presents different opportunities and things you can do with them. It took me a little bit to get used to, but when that first happened, I was a little bit put off because I'm like, I want more. Give me more. This was the skip that was expected at the beginning of the book, but instead, Drew was a great author and he decided that you needed to see the commitment from Xana before, and he obviously wanted to put the Orbalisks in place, but he wanted to see the commitment from Xana and the aftermath of the Thought Bomb on Bane and then wrap that up and then skip. So that all your questions going into what was going to happen, all of those were answered. And then once everything was answered, then it was like, okay, now we're going to go to the next part of the story I want to tell. That is something a lot of authors don't do from the first book to the second book, I feel like. Yeah, they explain it through exposition later going back in time. 
versus letting you answer all the questions and then jump forward. Now, they do have some back-of-time exposition in the book, but it's not as much needs to be done because you're already bought in to everything that happened before the time skip. We are 10 years later. We jump 10 years in the future, and then we get to see kind of where all of our characters have ended up. So Xana is currently on a mission to infiltrate a resistance group trying to take down the Republic. Bane is trying to make a holocron for the fourth time that he's failed three other times. They kind of have a camp set up with all their supplies. They've taken over all the accounts of Cordis and decided that they're going to use all of those accounts to kind of siphon those money out to put like a network of information in place, put spies in place, manipulate anything they need to. And it's kind of like the Sith general fund. And then Johan is still with Chancellor Valorum, who's no longer chancellor. He is now just like kind of a diplomat and Johan has stayed on with him. We find that Bane's ultimate goals right now are to find any of these rebellions who are look promising and cause them to destroy themselves early because it's easier to defeat the Senate and the current Republic because it's one enemy than it would be if any of these rebellions took off and then everything got fractured into multiple enemies. What I really like about this part is it answers a lot of questions for me and it helps me as I mentioned earlier, with Plagueis, because you get the introduction of what Bane is doing. He's making these contacts, which if you just read Plagueis, seemed too OP at that time. But when you read this book and step it back, you see the beginning of that and you can be like, okay, where Plagueis was in that book, you can see how it's slowly building. Like the Sith for a thousand years built up all these resources and contracts that by the time you get to the prequel trilogy and Plagueis, that is why he has so many resources at his disposal. And it also helps explain how the Sith are able to stay hidden from the Republic because the Sith manipulating distractions to keep the Jedi preoccupied. Exactly. They're using all these different attacks and different groups to preoccupy the Jedi and all the resources, but also make sure that they stay in power because it's easier to fight one opponent. Xana ends up infiltrating a group and causing them to spring their trap early instead of waiting for a different date. She convinces them to then go capture Valorum when he lands on this planet. We do get to see a little of Xana getting to kind of her freedom. She has like a partner during this time, but you could tell that she's still very much on the dark side. She's not giving in to any of her feelings of being with this guy for very long or anything else. It's just something that she's doing for now, which is good. You see a much more grown up Xana. You get introduced to the patience, the secrecy, the deception, and that's really what Bane's trying to instill that the Sith become. Instead of just being open force against the Jedi, use the dark side for secrecy and deception and set plans, and that's kind of what the Sith become and ultimately allows them to take over the galaxy. You also see the obelisk effect on Bane where he is trying to put together a holocron, not his first attempt, he fails again. And you see him in a moment of blind rage caused by the obelisk where he's frustrated. He is putting off his energy into trying to create a holocron, not starving, but causing the obelisk to crave it. So the obelisk forced this huge volume of liquid into Bane to cause him just to get into a blind rage. Like, okay, maybe these obelisks are not all good. Yep, you sort of see some doubt play in because he does go into blood rage a couple different times, but ultimately he does after he fails the holocron, which we learn later is not really his fault. He's missing an ingredient. What happens is once he becomes depleted of dark side because he's been using it so much, the orbalists still need to feed. So they cause him pain intentionally to force him to create more dark side energy for them to feed on. This causes a loop 
where eventually he's unable to control himself any further and goes into a blood rage. It also causes him to have spasms in his hand and things because of the pain. He's no longer able to control it as easily. So he loses a lot of his small motor functions and abilities the more energy he expounds. Normally he's fine, but if he starts giving out too much energy, he gets too tired. That's when these effects start to happen. Before we go any further, at the end of the first book, going into the second book, I actually expected him to fail with Zahanna. I expected, okay, as his first apprentice, I expected it not to go well. I expected her to fail or surpass or try to surpass him and end up being killed just because it was new for him. So I was reading this whole book and I was expecting that. And when Zahanna planted those seeds into Bane and later tries to test Bane through yoking into it, somebody that she introduced, I was expecting that to happen. I don't know if you expected that when you first read the book, but that was just something in my mind. No, because this was the first book I read. I didn't expect that because I hadn't seen Githany already. I think if I had already seen Githany being used the way she was used, maybe I would have thought maybe Zan is going to fail in the future. But I was just introduced as this is the master, this is the apprentice. That was an expectation that I had. Plus, you start seeing Zana is really, one, learning all the lessons super well, but she's also starting to use it against her master. But at the same time, she still has no understanding of the greater Sith plan. She excels in a couple of different areas, and she's learned a lot of the foundation, but she doesn't understand the political aspect of the Sith at all, which I think is a really good introduction of, hey, she is in training, she is very proficient at things, but she's not great yet. She's not as strong as Bane, and even she knows that. I also thought it was very interesting because you see her when she tests Bane, which we'll get into in a little bit here. I thought that was a very interesting perspective to have because she is sitting and she's being patient. She's watching Bane. She's learning. She is looking for opportunities. She's testing his limits. It's just very fascinating because I feel like sometimes that doesn't get explored a lot when it comes to the Sith, at least in the stories that I've read. So that was very interesting. And she's testing her boundaries, but she's also planting seeds. But she has to be very smart in order to do it if she wants to succeed. And in order for the Sith to do it, she has to be. Yep. And she's showing that super well. So they do tell one quick story of when she was in training that I did like a lot. He was teaching her patience and had her go to a cave and lure a small animal out. That was obviously very skittish, and you couldn't dominate its mind, you couldn't tie a rope around it, but the goal was to, of its own free will, bring it back to the camp. So she goes out for countless weeks and days and days and just meditates and and sits there to get their presence comfortable. Then she starts bringing it food. She kind of develops a small relationship with the animal because it comes out and eats from her, and eventually it trusts her and follows her all the way back to the camp. And the second it comes back to the camp, Bane just reaches out with a force, snaps its neck, and they throw it in the stew. Bane was teaching her not to become emotionally attached to things, which is something that she uses later when she is sleeping with the Twi'lek. We also get another flashback where she's training with her lightsaber, and Bane is teaching her her style with the lightsaber, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's uh, she's using a short double-bladed lightsaber because she is not physically strong, but this allows her to put up a defense that is almost impenetrable, because instead of blocking strikes... She is simply just redirecting strikes. And so she spins it and twirls it in front of her and just redirects strikes that would come at her. And that allows her to slowly wear down her opponents over time because she doesn't have the physical mass that Bane has. But also, I would believe this is also a weakness of Bane's teaching. He had to draw on the lightsaber training that he knew of to teach her. 
he couldn't directly teach her his style because she was the complete opposite of his. So he had to do what was the best of his knowledge that he knew how to teach her in lightsaber combat. When I picture style in my head, that is a very interesting style because obviously the most well-known style that we have with the double lightsaber is Maul. However, she's a lot smaller, blades are shorter, and she's actually more defensive than Maul is because obviously Maul is taller, he's stronger. Maul is a lot more aggressive with a lot more fury. So picturing her style was very innovative and it really captured my imagination because we haven't seen it. At least I didn't at this point in time. Yeah, exactly. And Maul is more trained to fight multiple opponents, which is why he uses his style. And she's more just protect herself, don't die, and wear them out is kind of how her style is created. But ultimately, we end up seeing that the resistance that they triggered to attack early ends up failing because Johan is still there with Valorum. They get into a fight. They show how weak Johan is. He's a very weak Jedi. Ends up sacrificing himself. He's, I don't like him as a character because... I don't find him interesting, and I also, he is everything I dislike about the Jedi, for the most part. But he ends up just trying to do a, like, sacrifice himself to take out this assassin, and falls off the cliff holding him, and ends up surviving because he believes that the Force willed him to survive, which I would just argue he put up a Force barrier around himself, kind of what most Jedi do when they are going to take fall damage. But he attributes it because he gave himself to the Force. And then the next part where the story starts to change is when Xana is sent. Master Bane has destroyed the entire camp and destroyed most of their supplies because he failed the holocron. Xana is then sent to go back into this city and collect new supplies. And while doing that, she gets captured by this resistance group and is then taken to their leader, Hinton. It turns out that Hinton actually has the dark side in him. When I first read this, I was super surprised by this. This is a moment that took me by complete surprise, and I thought it was a super interesting moment how they had her get captured, but they're constantly telling you how she could escape this situation anytime she wants. They're making sure you know that Xan is not weak, that she's allowing all this to happen, which I thought was a great way to write it as well. I also was surprised at this moment, and I also thought it was very, it really drew me in as well, because we also see her dark side sorcery in action too. Yeah, I thought this was awesome because they do a quick flashback where Bane has taken all of these sorceries and Sith magics and written them all down for her and given her the tome to read and said, hey, I can't help you much with this, but through our tests, we have found that this is your affinity. It's super rare, but your affinity is for to be a sorcerer. But I can't really teach you any of this stuff because I don't know it, so you're going to have to learn it on your own. But then he tells her, if you ever use it on me, I'll kill you immediately. She's been practicing with it, and you get to see it for the first time where she does some intricate hand motions, uses the dark side super quickly to cast basically abominations and demons into someone's mind and and makes them go insane. So basically like force insanity. I think that's what it's called in games if you ever play it. Causes them to lose control, and eventually she pushes it to the point where the person's mind breaks that she casts this on. After she does that, Hinton is super impressed and basically kneels in front of her and says, I've been waiting for someone like this my entire life. Please train me. I want to be your apprentice. So Hinton then takes her around and shows her how he has all of these tomes of the Sith and how he was found to have power. But since he's from a wealthy family, they were able to hide him from the Jedi and the Sith. And ultimately, he had to kill his mom because his mom wanted to send him out to work with Khan and he didn't believe in Khan because he's read all these old tomes and Khan's vision didn't match up with the old tomes. He thinks he's powerful in a way that he's not. He knows he's not super powerful, but he thinks he's way more powerful than he actually is. He's not a very strong in the dark side. He hasn't really had a real teacher. He's been reading tomes. But he begs Xana to train him. 
and says he'll give her this tome who has, I think it's Belay is the name of this woman who created techno machines and created a holocron. She'll give him the location of basically her final tomb where she can go investigate. And they make a plan to attack Bane, to overthrow Bane, and she'll then be the master and then he will be the apprentice. Turns out that Hinton has eight of the Ambari shadow assassins working for him from Khan's army. They then decide to send these to the camp to attack Bane. It was during this moment I was very interested to see what Zahana was going to do. Again, I was expecting her to fail. I'm like, is she really going to go through this? Or I didn't know what to expect because the guy is 40 years old, which age is a number. I mean, Dooku became a Sith when he was like in his 60s. I think he's in his 60s, might have been 70s. But anyways, I was like, okay, there's no way he can be an apprentice. He just, he's not strong. He's old. I hate using that phrase, but you know what I'm saying? And is Zahanna really generally trying to do that? She was using the situation to her advantage to test her master, but also spin the situation to her advantage, which reminds me again very much a lot of Sidious, where he has the situation where no matter what happens, he comes out ahead because if she was successful, which she is not ready yet, it's still too soon for her, at least she would become the master and she would be able to, it's win-win for her. If she lost, then she can spin the situation to her advantage because this guy had knowledge that she can use to give to Bane to try to continue on with that apprenticeship. Bane alludes to it later, but this is the opposite of what he wanted to happen. He never wants anyone to take over power by using multiple forces to do it. It should be a one-on-one confrontation. This is 100% against the rule of two, this move is. Irregardless of if it has succeeded or not, it would have made the Sith weaker, which is what the Rule of Two is trying to make not happen. Originally in Darth Bane's plan, and this gets diluted over time, it's supposed to be an open challenge for the title. It's not supposed to be done any other way. Like, you can attack someone in secret, as in, like, Sidious poisoning his master is not in the Bane of Rule of Two. Like, that's not how Bane designed it to take place. The further out you go, the farther you get from his initial attention. He wanted the strong to always survive, so you had to do an open challenge to take the mantle. So even the way that Plagueis kills his master, he crushes his master. He didn't do it. I don't want to use the phrase honorable, but he didn't challenge him upright. He just saw an opportunity, and he used that opportunity to turn his advantage instead of challenging his master for the title. So That one's a lot more okay. That one within the realm of being allowed by Bane's rule, because the master was at least aware and there and then was being then directly attacked, he should have been able to protect himself either way. That's kind of what Bane believes. It's different like if you're sleeping and you get poisoned, or if you send an army after your master and kill him. Those things are not acceptable. The most honorable way is a direct challenge, but you can use some secrecy, some trickery in it that is allowed within his like rule of two. Some of these stuff do get covered later in the next book, so I don't want to talk about it too much. And we also know he's going to do a holocron, so I'm sure he's in his holocron wherever that pops up. Yep. And so they end up, Bane, being as strong as he is, realizes these are Imbaran assassins, and he rips their Force cloak away from them immediately. And they're all kind of stunned. They all have Force pikes. Bane doesn't defend himself because he has the Orbalists all over him, which is pretty normal. That's his new strategy. But he gets hit with all these Force pikes, which is the first time we see that lightning does actually affect the Orbalists. They're not very good at defending against lightning. It kind of takes him down for a moment. But he's able to regenerate and pop up, and he kind of just kind of dispatches all of these people with no issue. Henton ends up rushing in to try and take down Bane, but Xana doesn't ever attack him. She just watches the whole thing take place. 
Bane ends up dispatching with Hinton as well. And then he is in a full blood rage at this point in time and attacks Xana without any explanation, just bellows that he's betrayed her and he then attacks her. While she's trying to defend himself, she's then telling him, no, I did this for you. I couldn't defeat these people. I was trying to get this for you. And he's on the verge of killing her. That was just such a risky move for her to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was expected was for him to attack. But typically, if he was not in a blood rage, he would have been able to figure out what was actually happening. But she eventually breaks through his blood rage and explains, hey, this is why I didn't join in with you. Here is what I wanted to give you. And it's, it's basically a map to Belay's location on Tython where she created a holocron and is said to have explained how to do so, along with also having a bunch of sorceries. And she was a, a techno beast master, which is a creation of beasts through a techno poison, which causes something to become half machine and under her control. It's another thing that's just it's horrific to try to picture in my head, which we will see later in the book, but just picturing that in my head, just there's a lot of horror elements in this book. But we also see that Zahanna places in Bane's about doubt about the obelisk because he almost killed his apprentice. And if he killed his apprentice in blind rage, not being able to control his action, that's 10 years down the line and he would have to start all over again. Yep. This moves into the next phase of kind of the book where he accepts the fact that he needs to find a way to get rid of these orbalisks. He's afraid that they're making it so he can't make a holocron. He also doesn't want to destroy his camp. That's unbecoming of a Sith Lord out of rage. He almost killed his apprentice, which he said if his mind was sharper, he would have been able to identify her plan and would have rewarded her for her plan because it was smart and not against what he wanted. He asked her, well, why did you do this? She's like, well, I couldn't defeat them all myself. I needed you to defeat them so that I could give this to you. And he's like, okay, what if I had failed? And she's like, well, then you were weak. And he's like, good, that works. But it took forever for him to get to that point. And so he, this is where it kind of splits off. He sends her on a mission to go to the Jedi archives and discover everything they can about Orbalis, how to remove them, and how to not kill the person when they're removed. While he goes off to Tython to discover this missing holocron in this old Darth's tomb. I really like that in my head, trying to picture her going undercover to the Jedi archives and pretending that she's somebody that she's obviously not. That's just very going into the lion's den, trying to sneak in there. I like that part. Yeah, it's really cool. And it shows like the other part of Dark Side. She actually casts a spell on herself to mask her Dark Side ability, which is something we know Sidious uses a lot. Maybe not that spell, but he does mask his Dark Side ability amazingly. This is like a, leads into that sort of territory again. It's stuff being rediscovered, but she masks her ability and then she's projecting light side energy. And she's then also kind of disguising herself as this other apprentice that she looks out like, and she's going straight into the Jedi. And again, it shows how blind the Jedi can be, which has been a theme throughout a lot of the movies. On the flip side, Tomcat also comes back into the story. Yeah. So Johan convinces basically everyone to make a memorial to Hoth on Rusan and all of the people of light who sacrifice themselves. And then we start to allude to something funny. It starts to allude to this planet becoming Hoth in the future, for the first time ever getting snow, and they're getting a lot of snow, and it gets worse and worse every year. So I'm pretty sure that that seems like a very good hint, something that I think you talked about last episode, that it kind of looks like this is probably Hoth in the future. It reminds me a lot of, in canon, Starkiller Base and Ilum. It's like it's not officially stated that, hey, this is the same planet, but there's a lot of things that line up, especially if you play Jedi Fallen Order. And so reading this book, I was also getting that vibe. I'm like, wait a second, am I right about this being Hoth? 
And again, I don't want to get into any spoilers. If it was officially stated that this becomes Hoth or not, I don't want to get into it. But at this point in time, I was like, wait, wait, was I right on this or? Yeah, they seem to be heavily implying or hinting at that that is the case. So at least in my canon, because I still include Darth Bane into what I would consider canon since they haven't released anything that overwrites it. They've only released things that infers it. Still kind of fits in that theory with me. However, so Johan is now back on Rusan, and Tomcat has been living there for the last 10 years as a hermit, healing hermit. He heals people who comes out to see him. He doesn't like the fact that the Jedi are back, and he thinks it's going to cause problems, so he starts like messing up their operations and destroying their stuff. Johan camps out and waits for him, then ends up catching him. Tomcat ends up saying how he knows that Bane is still alive, that he took his cousin as an apprentice, and so Johan's like, okay, I got to take you back to the Jedi Council so that you can tell them all this, because we need to make sure all the Sith are dead. And so at the same time that Xana is looking through the archives, Tomcat is back there as well, and they end up running into each other while she is looking for the Orbalisks. And this brings us perfectly into our next part, where she is looking, she's researching solutions and how to remove the Orbalisks, which Tomcat actually runs into her. She doesn't run into Tomcat, Tomcat actually runs into her, which brings us perfectly into our next part of the book. Yeah, so she ends up actually discovering a way to save the host when things are removed, or at least potentially, and she gets super excited, jumps up, and her veil of Sith Sorcery kind of drops all of a sudden. That's when Tomcat realizes that it's her. Tomcat then feels bad that he's basically sentencing her to death and tells her that he's here because he's revealing the Sith are still around. So she decides she needs to run to Bane and tell him that the Jedi know of them and know his name. That was the important part. They know of a Darth Bane now. She wants to bring Tomcat because, one, she still has those feelings that she doesn't want him to die. But two, she believes that she can get him to heal Bane and take the Orbalisks off. So she hurries and runs and finds how to get to Tython, and then they take off in one of their ships to fly to Tython to warn Bane. This is also an important moment for her because this is a lesson for her. You know, she spared his life, and this is coming to, obviously he plays a part later, which we will see, in a sense, kind of bites her. Yeah, so this is like, she has to wrap up her own loose end, is almost what's going on here. So she takes off, Johan goes to Farfalla, tells him what's going on, so Farfalla agrees to go and talk to Johan, eventually learns that Tomcat met up with Rain, that they know of, now he believes that the Sith are real. So they go to the computer that they were previously on, find that they're going to Tython, instead of alerting the council because the council's busy and it'll take forever, they just grab a team of Jedi who all worked for Hoth. And they're going to fly to Tython after them to try and stop them. So that's where we take off is Darth Bane is in this temple looking for this holocron, finds a whole bunch of techno beasts that are surrounding this old holocron, starts to fight his way through it. They breathe some of their techno parasites into him, but his orbalists protect him from the virus. Eventually, after killing all of the techno beasts, he gets the holocron and then starts looking through it immediately. Finds out that it wasn't the orbalist's fault that he couldn't make a holocron. He actually just didn't know about the top cap of the holocron containing a crystal that also had to do a sorcery spell in order to get it to work. Now, knowing this, he's not 100% sure if he actually wants to remove the orbalists anymore. And we see how much he relies on the orbalists almost to a unhealthy point of view because his fighting style is so reliant on these creatures. Not only do they protect him, but they heal him that once he loses them, I'm sure we'll explore that in the next book. It dramatically changes his style that he relied on for so long. At the same time, he reminds me very much of a tank. He's a tank, Seth. Yes, he's very much just all aggression. Definitely considered a tank if he was in any game. 
and it's also why like every time people talk to me about how should bane be integrated into any game i'm like well he should just be a tank he's not known for much else other than just being a force of nature tank but i mean he just blindly runs into things and then hopes his orbalists are going to protect him is essentially what he does he's like i'm not going to protect myself against the parasites i'm just going to hopefully they can stop it but he's training and then all of a sudden xana shows up on the planet explains to him that the jedi know what's going on and they need to figure out a solution in that Tomcat's here because he's a healer and can heal him from the Orbalists. He's not sure if he wants to get the Orbalists removed, but at that moment, the Jedi ship arrives to fight them. So they take off into the temple to wait for the Jedi to show up. And I think this is my favorite scene in the entire book, 100%. The fight that we are leading into, in my opinion, right off the top of my head, is the best lightsaber fight in a book I have read. It really captured my imagination. I was really glued to it. I was able to follow the details of what was going on. It was like, okay, this is really awesome because telling a lightsaber fight in a book, especially one that you have not seen before and isn't being adapted from a different source, it's very hard to picture that in your head. And this is after the prequel trilogy. Like if you read the books before the prequel trilogy, a lot of the lightsaber fighting was grounded into the original trilogy. Where with this one, not only did you have the original trilogy, but you had the prequel trilogy, you had the Old Republic fighting style, so I think you were able to expand upon the lightsaber fighting, and was really able to present a fight that is not only appropriate of the time period, but was able to draw in the reader. Yeah, and so the Jedi show up, there's five in total, four active combatants, and one Ithorian who does battle meditation. I don't know about you, but I pictured the creature from the Clone Wars show, the original Clone Wars. The Athorian? Yes. I know of my Athorians from, like, Star Wars Galaxies. That's where I've always gotten the same picture. But they have the side mouths, they have the hammerheads, is also what they're called. But yes, those are the Athorians with the four mouths on their, on their necks. But what I was saying is, when I was picturing this character, I was picturing that one. Because that is a iconic moment in that series where he is protecting Palpatine. And he unleashes this whole thing. So I was just picturing that in my head because that is such an iconic moment. Yeah, and it's pretty similar to kind of what he does here. But ultimately, what ends up happening is they hide everything in a closet, including Tomcat, and they end up then fighting. And so it's Johan and this other very large Jedi who's using a double-bladed massive lightsaber ends up fighting Xana, who has positioned herself basically in a corner so she can put up her defense and just wait for her master to basically kill everyone else is what she's thinking. Bane ends up taking Farfalla and the weapons master from the Jedi temple there and fighting her. And she's using double lightsabers, one in each hand. Which we talked about this last episode. I love that fighting style. So just picturing that in my head, it just really captured my imagination. It's just like, because even in real life, dual wielding is so difficult because you're usually dominant in one hand over the other and trying to have the equal dexterity is so hard. And the scene's written really well because it doesn't take away from Bane's power in any aspect. It only adds to it because he's fighting these two Jedi who are great Jedi and also have battle meditation going on. He's able to do what he normally does to a single opponent. Like he unleashes a force energy against the female Blade Master, and her shield is nothing. He's going to just rip her apart. But Farfalla is standing there and projects his own shield onto her to protect her. She still gets blown back across the room, but she doesn't, you know, her bones don't evaporate. Then Bane jumps down onto Farfalla to kill him. The only reason he survives is because the other Jedi jumps in to protect him. So it's really taking both of them just to stop one of his attacks. 
when I was reading this, it also pointed out how at risk they are. Because even though Bane is strong, he is still at this point in time where he could still be outnumbered by the Jedi, especially with battle meditation. It pointed me towards the direction of, okay, maybe, I don't want to say maybe he isn't as strong, but it showed the vulnerability that the state that they are in. They cannot do a direct conflict with the Jedi. They just cannot because they're so at risk. Yep. No, I agree. You will see without battle meditation, I'm pretty sure he could take on all of them at the same time and be fine just due to the fact that they're drawing on so much less force than he is. But battle meditation is so incredibly powerful that it's basically, they're pretty evenly matched, the two of them versus him. I would also have to figure he is weakened by fighting all the techno beasts that they do mention a couple of times. But this is why I've always said he's not very powerful. He just has, he has some good abilities and he's very smart and he knows that sort of thing. But he ends up then eventually trying to wheel himself closer to the Athorian doing battle meditation because he's trying to kill him. And he starts getting the upper hand at one point in time. They're blocking some of his lightning, and he's starting to get to the point where they're starting to wear down. And Farfalla asks Johan, who is fighting Zana, to come help them. At this time, if we flip back to Zana, she's having no issue blocking everything. But mainly that's due to the fact that Johan is such a terrible Jedi that he doesn't know how to work with the other giant Jedi with a polearm there. And is getting in his way more often than not. And she sees a moment where she could have killed him and decides, you know what? You're so bad at being a Jedi and fighting. I would rather you sit here and attack me because you were making it worse for your partner. Exactly. That's just, I don't know why, but I'm just laughing at that right now. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't really like him as a character, but he's what I don't like about Jedi all put into one package. But he ends up going over to help and Bane is fighting off all three of them kind of without an issue. He's getting backed up occasionally, but he finally, Johan actually gets a small hit onto Bane's wrist, because that's one of his only open spots. Drops his lightsaber, Bane then unleashes a huge wave of dark side energy, throws all the Jedi back, basically against the wall, and then his hand just immediately reheals and he picks up his lightsaber again. While he knocked everyone down, that means no one's protecting the Battlemaster, and he leaps at the Battlemaster to destroy him, to stop that, because that's what's actually giving them any ability to stay alive. Johan force pushes because he's not, it literally says, Johan knows he's not strong enough to interact with Bane's force shield, so he just force pushes the Ithorian master out of Bane's way. That immediately breaks battle meditation, and it's all downhill from there. Xana is fighting this big guy with a polearm, and as soon as the battle meditation goes away, the guy kind of looks back and she immediately kills him, because he's slower and now he's distracted. And he was in a good position until he lost the battle meditation. Yep, because she kept distracting herself to look and see what Bane was doing because she was expecting everyone to be dead by now. She almost ends up dying herself because she drops her defense. But as soon as the battle meditation goes, she has no issue killing the Jedi in front of her. Then she cloaks herself into the Force and pops up right behind the weapons master Jedi and ends up just immediately killing her. Everything kind of starts going downhill after that. Bane cuts off Afala's head and then cuts off the hand of Johan then jumps over to the Athorian and cuts all his throats. He reaches out with Force Lightning to kill Johan, because he's laying there with his hand cut off. And at that moment, the Athorian reaches out with his last bit of strength with his hand, grabs a hold of Bane, uses his energy, his last of his Force, to put a cocoon around Bane. And his Lightning reflects off of the cocoon back at himself and basically completely fries himself with his own Force Storm. Man, picturing that in my head right now, it's just it really captivates you. Yeah, it's great. All the Jedi are dead now. Bane is now laying here, almost lifeless. The Orbalus can't handle Force Lightning. They're all dying. As they're dying, they're releasing poison into Bane. 
Bane is on the edge of death at this point. So Xana has a moment of choice where she needs to figure out how to heal him because she says to herself that he is not done training me. I could obviously kill him and become the master, but he has a lot of things I haven't learned yet. I still need him, which is a great revelation. That's how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to use something as the dark side commands, you use something until it's not useful anymore. This is also something that we do not see when it comes to Sith, like Bane, for quote unquote, being as strong as he is, he is sure on the edge of death a lot. He is. <laughs> That's what I said. He's not the most powerful guy. He has some good ideas, but he is not quite what we see the Sith turn into. She ends up trying to get Tomcat to heal him. Tomcat doesn't know what to do. They hook him up to a, a medical bed and they fly off to meet the healer who healed Bane in the last book. I thought this part was great, specifically how they land. The healer refuses to heal him at all and says, there's nothing you can do. She threatens him, tries to force choke him, grabs his intestines with the force and tries to squeeze him. He's not going to help him. But Tomcat is still trying to protect his cousin. So he convinces him to heal her master if they turn themselves in. So they place a call over to the Jedi. Hey, the Sith are here. They disable the ship and say, okay, I will help your master now that the Jedi are on their way and you have no escape after I heal him. Then he begins to heal Bane. Bane actually has a moment where he wakes up and they inform him that the Jedi are coming and he just kind of tells her to kill him, which I thought was great. Like that's Bane. Like that moment encapsulates Bane perfectly of what he cares about. And she's like, no, I can't because you're not done teaching me yet. We're going to get out of this. This also paid off, as I mentioned last episode, about the healer usefulness. Like I thought he would come back into the story. And I also think it teaches Johanna a lesson because obviously Bane told Johanna about him, about sparing life, how somebody could be useful later on. And it was actually at this moment in time, I was very glued to the book. I was like, okay, how are they going to get out of this? Because as you mentioned, she tried to threaten the healer and the healer would never do it. And his daughter is no longer there. He knew that they would eventually come back. When they first got there, he wasn't there. He was hiding. He was like, you were eventually going to find me. It was worth a try hiding. But it was very interesting trying to watch this and figure out, okay, how are they going to get him to heal Bane? And how are they going to get out of this situation? Which we'll get to in a second. But before I do, Bane wakes up and he actually feels the blanket. And it's that moment where he feels naked. Before that, the creatures come off and just picturing that, that puss and that ugliness is just horrifying to picture in my head. Yeah, he misses them once he wakes up. He feels like he's missing a part of himself. He doesn't know if he's happy that they're gone is basically how he feels about it, which is great. It again tells you how reliant they were on each other. Yeah, I mean, he, he has had it for 10 plus years now and he developed all of his style of everything around having these. Now, I don't want you to tell me, but I would expect him to battle with this in the third book because, like I said, for 10 years, he relied on these creatures. To go through those 10 years with those abilities and those creatures feeding him to going to nothing is such a dramatic shift that I would expect them to explore that. So that is so fascinating because I actually expected them to be on him up until he died based on what you were saying. So when they came off of him, I was a little bit surprised. Yeah, it's really cool kind of dichotomy. You get to see a lot of different versions of Bane, which I think is really cool. But ultimately, they end up pulling a trick on the Jedi and using Tomcat as bait and the additional lightsabers that they have collected after the battle on Tython. She ends up ultimately making the biggest decision, which is to kill her cousin, blaming him for basically going crazy and killing all the Jedi as well. 
through some use of Sith alchemy tricks and then kind of set up there. I thought that part was, I did not see that as their way to get out of the Jedi showing up. I didn't either. She made the Jedi think that he was a Sith because as far as the Jedi knew, they didn't know what the Sith looked like. They knew that the Sith was injured. Obviously, his cousin was missing his hand. He had the lightsabers, who as far as they were concerned, he was the Sith. I mean, she didn't even mention the apprentice in the original message. They were convinced that that was the Sith. She cast her sorcery on him to make him lose his mind. They ended up killing him and then being like, oh, I guess we destroyed the Sith here and moved on. So ultimately, he did become useful in lots of different ways to her. But she finally, that was her shedding the last connection she had to Rain. But to be fair, they wouldn't have been in that situation in the first place if he did die. Correct. At least she was able to fix the problem. But I thought it was a great way for her to completely become Xana. There is no more ties to Rain. Rain is completely dead now. And that's basically where the main book ends is the Jedi, they disperse of Tomcat and they leave. I was wondering like, okay, where is the Hannah? Where is Bane? And they are actually hiding where the healer was hiding underneath the floor. And that's basically where the book ends. Yep. And they basically end with he's recovering. Jedi no longer think that he's around. Everything's kind of back to status quo, except for they need to move on now with one, the holocron. They have the holocron from her temple. He knows how to make one now, and he no longer has the orbalist, so it's even setting up for Xana to take his life later in a more fair fight, because that's one of her plans to get them off of him to begin with. And he accepts her choice, because he was really mad that she wouldn't kill him. He eventually accepts her choice as being the right choice. And I believe that is explored in the epilogue, where they have a, I'm going to use the phrase, it's the wrong phrase to use, a heart-to-heart moment where they reflect on it. And she basically tells him, he's like, why didn't you kill me? And she's like, you still have a lot for me to learn. You need to stay alive so I can learn that, but I will kill you. And it ends with Bane smiling, saying, good, you're learning. You got this down. You know what to do. And so overall, which book did you like better, the first one or this one? I like both for different reasons. In my opinion, this book is Zahana's book. I always bring it back to wrestling. The first book is The Road to the Championship. And the second book is holding on to that title. Usually the rise to power, the road to victory to claim your first world championship is a lot more interesting than it is reigning as world champion, becoming the master. But that's just my opinion. I really like book one. I like seeing the actual lessons. I like them digging really deep into how to make a holocron. Like I find the lore aspect of the second book is way more interesting than the lore aspect of the first book, mainly because the first book's lore is already covered in like Kultor and a bunch of other stuff. But this is one of the first times you see like very intricately, how do you make a holocron? Sis sorcery. What are people aptitudes? Like it really digs. Like I think this book has a longer lasting lore implications than the, the first book does. As I said before, I like both for different reasons. It's apples and oranges. You know, I'm not going to like a orange how I like an apple and vice versa. I love Zahanna. I want more of the dynamic between Bane and Zahanna. In those 10 years that you gloss over, I just find that really interesting. I find her to be a really interesting character. I still find that, as I said, the first book more interesting, but I'm just going to take the easy way out and say I love them both. That's fair. I will say I prefer to read book one more because I've read all the books multiple times. I have no issue going through book one multiple times. 
book two, there's the middle parts with Johan I really dislike. <laughs> Actually, anytime Johan is in the book or what I'm listening to, I'm always like, kind of skip this part. Kind of skip this part. Can you stop showing me the Jedi? Yeah, I don't like him either. <laughs> he's so weak. It's it's ridiculously how weak he is. He almost lost to a non-Jedi assassin, and he couldn't even muster enough force to push him around. It's so bad. Wrapping up this part of the show, before we move on to our listener questions, do you have any last words you would like to say about this book? I think this book is great. Even if you listen to this, maybe you haven't read the book in a while, or maybe you've never read the book and you're just listening to the podcast anyway. I would 100% read it yourself. There's a bunch of like details and stuff that we never covered, and it's 100% worth reading this trilogy just to kind of get firsthand account of exactly what happens. I cannot wait to revisit this book. I do want to allow some time to pass before I revisit the trilogy again. As I said before, this will be a book trilogy that I will definitely revisit. I love Sahana. I cannot wait to read book three. I just hope there's more stories out there. Obviously, this is Legends. So they're not telling more legend stories, but I would love to get more stories with this, like in a comic or something. I don't know if there is. Please don't tell me. I will look into it later. But yeah, this dynamic is so interesting and it's something that I haven't seen before, as I mentioned before, that I just like sticking my teeth into and I just want more. It's very reminiscent of the dark side. It's like, give me more. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Moving into our listener questions. We only have two listener questions. And they are from Moonroof25 from our Discord channel. His first question is, standing on its own, does it stand on its own as well as Path of Destruction does? And you already answered this, but go ahead and answer it. I would say 100% it does, considering it was the first book I read in the series. Because they do such a good job at the beginning of explaining everything that happened previously, and every time they have a situation that builds off the past, they do a short amount of explaining. If you have previous knowledge of most of the things, like, it's not very confusing. Like, yeah, you know how Sith get trained, so if they talk about Bane's training, you can infer what that training was. I think that this book does hold up by itself, but I would also say, just read the first one and then read the second one, because they're so good. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to hold up on its own. I agree 100%. As you said, it does stand out on its own, but I think if you read the first one, you understand a little bit of what's going on in the second book a little bit more. It's nice to see how Bane came to the conclusion that he has, that you see an effect in Rule 2. But if you're not going to read the first book, why wouldn't you read the first book? The second book, you can pretty much, as you said, you can read and stand on its own, but I don't know why you would do that in the first place. Exactly. His final question. Does this book do a good job of building upon the lore from the previous book? Um, yeah, and like I mentioned before, I think the lore in this book is far more reaching than the first book, because the first book does a great job of taking lore you already know about if you've played Kultor and then bringing it to life again. This book does a great job of then adding new lore to flesh things out, like Tython. Tython's awesome, because you play a Tython in Tor, if you've ever played Tor. You're on Tython as the birthplace of the Jedi, and you know about their fights there. You know about techno beasts, and they wrap all that stuff up and add more lore to it. That's gorgeous. They get to go back to Tython, which has been a place that is lost in the new canon. At this point in time, it still existed, so you get to see that. And they flush out how to make holocrons, why they were lost, and they go into tons of detail about how to make a holocron, which I don't think any book has ever done before. You know, among countless other things that they add to, like Orbalisks and Freedom Nad and Exar Kun. And I think the lore from this book is just phenomenal. I want to play the Old Republic so badly just because I want to explore that lore. I will eventually get to it. But to answer the question, I absolutely agree. It does a great job of building upon lore. 
The first book is coming to the conclusion of the rule two and setting up the rule two. The second book is seeing that in play. And as I said before, this is new for Bane. He had nothing to go off of because there was countless amount of Sith. Even before the Brotherhood, you had that Master Apprentice, but there was always more than two of them. This is new ground for them. And you see him learning, and you see Zahana learning it as well. It's just such a fresh area because anytime you dive into the story, it usually has the history of Sith before it. And this is just, it's just built upon what came before it, so... I think the gorgeous thing about reading this book, it does two things. One, it shows everything that led up to Palpatine. Like, you could see all of it, but you also see why Palpatine failed. It shows that Palpatine lost his way. He didn't develop an apprentice to take his place. He tried to build up a permanent place for himself. He breaks so many of the rules. He didn't learn everything from his master before he killed him. He just killed him. He broke so many rules, it shows why his reign didn't continue. Had he followed Bane's teaching more, you probably would have seen Sidious live on. Darth Vader isn't going to kill Sidious and take his place. He just never is really going to do that. What Sidious should have done is got rid of Darth Vader and taken a new apprentice at some point to kill himself, but he didn't want to die. He never expected to die. And that's why he could have been turned on and his reign be ended. If he had followed the rule of two, someone would have just taken his place and continued with everything that was going on. Yeah, that's, it's absolutely fascinating because obviously how canon is, it's a little bit different now, but it really just captures your imagination. That will conclude our listener questions. Listeners, if you would like to have your questions featured on our show, please consider joining our Discord channel and look for posts asking for questions when we next record. The link to join the Discord will be in our show notes down below. That will do it for this episode, but before we get out of here, we would like to take this time out to thank our patrons. Thank you, Peter, Nathan, Bill, Taylor, Forever Fett, Sean, Zine, Bizzle, Jeffrey, Samuel, Josh, NJ Klinka, Michael, and Austin. We could not do what we do without your support. That will wrap up this episode of Ari Bell. Coming up next, we are going to be diving into the film that inspired the name of this podcast. One of the best and popular Star Wars films of all time, Rogue One. Thank you, Manton, for coming on and talking with me about book two of the Dark Bane trilogy. I had a lot of fun, and as always, I cannot wait to have you back on to talk about book three. Yeah, I appreciate coming on. It's always a great time to talk about Bane, uh, really dig into things. And book three is sweet. I'm actually super excited to reread this one because this is the book I've read the least amount. I'll probably be super fresh and excited when we jump onto that podcast. Without spoilers, why is that? I like Bane so much that you never want to see a trilogy end. So I've probably spent a lot less time reading that book. And we know what's coming in the third book. Without spoilers, we already know what's coming. Of course. If people would like to reach out to contact you, where can they find you? A bunch of discords. Probably any discord you're in, just find Manton in there and you're going to be able to find me. And you can find me everywhere at Shadow Geek Girl. That concludes this episode of Ari Bell. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, I have been Jedi Geek Girl. Jedi Geek Girl, out. This has been Ari Bell, a Star Wars podcast. I have been your host, Jedi Geek Girl. If you would like to contact me, please send me an email at irebelldestiny at gmail.com. And as always, may the force be with you.
Ivy Bell is an independent podcast, not associated with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any other organization. All copyrights for Star Wars and all other properties belong to the proper copyright holders.